Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Kay Kerr. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Each week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. And each week, we look at the issues that drive our storytelling to help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, and to acknowledge that they are unceded lands, stolen lands, and that treaty has never been made in Australia. Kay Kerr is the author of the critically acclaimed Please Don't Hug Me. Today, Kay is joining us with her new novel. It's called Social Cue. Zoe's life is looking up. High school's over and she's landed her dream job interning at online media company Bubble. Getting here took work though. High school left Zoe burnt out. She was bullied because she's autistic. And even without the bullying, sometimes it was all too much attention, too much misplaced sympathy for her neurodiversity. Zoe knows she's missed out on some stuff. So when the opportunity comes to write a story about navigating the world of online dating, Zoe can barely imagine what's in store for her. Embarking on a series of dates to unlock the social secrets of modern love, Zoe is challenging herself to really think about what she wants in a friend and in a partner. Join me as we discover Kay Kerr's social cue. Kay, welcome. Welcome back to Final Draft. Thank you so much for having me. I loved Please Don't Hug Me and I've equally loved Social Cue with the incredible characters that you write. I want to introduce people, especially to Zoe. There is so much um, so much heart, so much everything to Social Cue. And let's start a little bit with genre because, I mean, Social Cue riffs on the rom-com genre and Zoe herself finds solace in romance stories. But as a genre, romance, it tends to turn on misunderstandings and the difficulties of two hearts meeting. And that's a, that's a very, you know, particular thing for Zoe, like being able to tune in on uh, necessarily, you know, all of the social cues around her. Would you make a distinction between the genre conventions that we see in romance and Zoe's own search as a young autistic woman to understanding how modern romance might work for her? So I, I came to this as a romance lover. I'm a big fan of the genre, both um, books and movies. So I guess I took the parts that I liked um, from my favourite, you know, books and movies and that kind of thing and I and maybe trashed the parts I didn't like, like particularly enemies to lovers is a trope that I dislike, which a lot of people love. But the idea of people mistreating each other at the start or one person mistreating another person and then that leading to love later on just, in my autistic mind does not translate at all. So, so with this book, I guess I wanted to look um, at a romance or rom-com through the lens of autism and this autistic main character. And I wanted to, I guess, pull apart that idea of those social misunderstandings being these cute quirky things that you can work through um, to find romance, because if social misunderstandings are a part of your everyday life, you know, there's a lot of 
just exhaustion. There's a lot of work that goes into to understanding those um, missed social cues and, and a toll that it can take as well. So I wanted to pull that apart. Um, but also you just have a little bit of fun. I mean, please don't hug me as my first novel was emotionally quite heavy. Um, so my first starting point for this was wanting to, to go the other way and lean into um, romance and a bit of escapism. And obviously some bigger themes came out in the writing of this book, but that was definitely the starting point. It's a really interesting point you made there about, um, I guess, the the enemies to lovers kind of trope because, I mean, romance as a genre is interesting. It's so triggering for people. They, you know, some people just just hate it. And then romance is, you know, romance can still be a part of other stories. But there is definitely some some toxic stuff going on and almost normalising of really bad attitudes in in that enemies to lovers trope that you just discussed. I mean, I'm not surprised that that would be something you would want to avoid. Yeah, and I think good romance addresses these kind of, you know, power imbalances or toxicities in, you know, old-fashioned um, stories. So I, I wanted to add to the, to the genre because I'm such a fan of it and also um, I guess to, to have a bit of a say around how that looks as an autistic protagonist. And and by adding, we we evolve, I guess. We're not, you know, genres aren't static. We can change them. So for Zoe, she is interning at Bubble and she needs to pitch a story and this is causing her a lot of stress. And she takes on, she pitches and takes on this assignment to write about modern dating. And the article, when the article's a hit, she sets herself up on a mission to go on a date with five former admirers, five people who have kind of, you know, slid into the comments and just been like, hey, I always thought you were you were pretty okay. Now, before we get into discussing that, I wanted to just acknowledge a brief moment. It almost slipped under the radar. In fact, I, I had to reread this to see what you'd actually done. In her first article for Bubble, Zoe actually acknowledges she's writing in a post-pandemic world, which is just so incredible for me, like... What went into this choice and and did you feel like you needed to actually imagine things into the future of a, a, a post-COVID dating world? Yeah, it was strange because I wrote the novel and probably the first three or four months of 2020. So when I started writing, COVID wasn't, didn't exist. It wasn't on the landscape at all for me in, in my story. And then um, I don't think I mentioned it in the first draft because it was, you know, COVID had just started and we were very unsure and we were probably very optimistic about how long it would last and, and how quickly things would return to normal. And then I guess through the editing process, I realised that for it to be, you know, a contemporary story, I couldn't, I could either choose to predate it and put it, you know, set it in 2019 or to give it a more sort of, um, contemporary timeless kind of a feel to just pretend COVID was behind the story because I just had no interest in writing a book that was set in COVID times and I still have no interest. Maybe one day down the track when we're well past it, I'll have interest in reading or writing those stories. But in the midst of it, I really wanted to be away from it. But I felt like the little mention of it that's in the book, I thought, you know, it would be strange to be navigating dating for the first time when we've had all these lockdowns and we've had social distancing and, and, you know, like that, that's probably played a part in, in romance and and dating for people of that age 
in its own certain way as well. Mm. It, when I saw that comment, when I, when I was doing this reread and I saw that comment, it literally blew my mind and I started thinking about the interactions in the novel. Did you have any moments where you thought this crowd can't be too big or maybe they'll have a moment sitting too close? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I think a lot of the aspects of social distancing of, of avoiding crowds and stuff is, you know, stuff that I do naturally anyway. So I didn't, I didn't seek, I mean, I did, you know, there is a wedding in the novel. That's not a spoiler or anything. Um, but also I'm in Queensland. So I guess we've been to a certain extent quite sheltered and in our own little bubble of not having experienced the, you know, the lockdowns and the the harsh sort of con- and outbreaks and high numbers and that of other states. So I guess I was kind of trying to avoid it, but also trying to acknowledge that it had happened in order for the book to feel like, I guess, it was real. Yeah, it's so fascinating how that will play out in different minds for different people because of those different conditions. Just sticking, sticking to the idea of the romance, Zoe's going to go on these five dates and there is, and I just, reading my own notes, I realised, Quick language warning. There is a lot of toxic bullshit wrapped up in these classical ideas of romance. And Heathcliff, Heathcliff, I am definitely looking at you. Um, Zoe experiences different levels of intimacy and different responses from different partners. How did you want to approach those different power dynamics in social cue? Yeah, I think I wanted specifically to look at um, the balance of autonomy around dating with a disability and how she's at this very transitional period of her life. And I imagined, you know, if she's grown up um, autistic and going to therapies and her mum organizing all her appointments and, and um, being very sort of supported and cared for in that way by her family, there is a transitionary period where she is wanting to, to be more independent and, but she also does need support. So just trying to find that autonomy um, and that balance for her um, was something that I found interesting to play with. And, and she's ambitious, you know, and, but she's also has to be mindful of her, her need for downtime. So it was just, it was just an interesting, I guess, topic to explore. And that's what I wanted to do with writing about romance and autism, because it isn't something that we see a lot of. And I don't think particularly it isn't something that we see done well, very often. Um, so I wanted to, yeah, just get into all of the parts of, of a romance, a romantic story that I like and yeah, see how that looks for, for Zoe. It was, and I mean, it was fabulous seeing Zoe exercise her agency. And I mean, she's incredibly articulate about the, what she wants for herself, but also the way then that has to be navigated with people's responses. Particularly you, you completely flip one scene where, Zoe is in getting. She's in a really sketchy situation, um, and the way this guy is behaving. And I think for a lot of readers, they're going to see this going in a particular way. But she's set up a safeguard, and and a friend comes to sort of help her out. But it's in her confrontation with, and I'm being purposefully vague, so I'm not spoiling anything here. It's in her confrontation with her rescuer that this exercise of agency really resonated. Basically, he he says to Zoe that she needs to be more careful. Not that her date should be a little less rapey in his advances. His condescension is really triggering for Zoe. She doesn't want people to perceive that autism makes her helpless. And what I was really interested in is 
where the victim blaming intersects with this idea of, of disability rights and how she is perceived as a person with autism and, and whether this was something you wanted to address. Yeah, I mean, I think it started from a point of, you know, a lot of girls and women, uh, myself included, have sketchy experiences in their sort of coming of age, teenage and early adulthood years. So once I had my diagnosis, which I didn't get until I was in my 20s, I started to reflect back on my own history um, and I guess pulling apart and exploring how um, autism came into play in in some of those circumstances. And um, one thing that I, I guess I was thinking about a lot and in particular um, with that scene is when I'm in a very stressful situation, I often shut down. It's like an autistic shutdown, which people don't necessarily know as much about as, you know, meltdowns, but um, that's quite a common reaction. So I just, I thought that was an interesting thing. And I think one of the lines Zoe says is like, if she was going to be abducted, she wouldn't be the person who kicks and screams. She would sort of just silently go with her abductor because that's what shutdown does to her brain. Um, And I think when I was writing the book as well, I had read a statistic about autistic girls and women um, being three times more likely to be sexually assaulted in teen, in childhood teenhood. Um, Not that that's what, you know, what happens on the page or anything like that, but that was just in the forefront of my mind and something I wanted, I guess, to give readers, particularly if an autistic girl or young woman is reading it, you know, maybe a different path out of that situation. If that's a sort of scary or sketchy situation you end up in, here's a way to get out of it. That factors in your autistic traits. That doesn't sort of tell you, well, why didn't you say anything? Or why didn't you, you know, take better care of yourself, which is what um, is said to Zoe and what is so triggering for her because it doesn't account for her disability at all, really. Something that you discuss both within the novel, but also read in your afterward, is the social model of disability and this model around how social barriers impact without without taking anything away from an individual's um, skills or difficulties, how social barriers impact a disabled individual's ability to live their life. It's important to Zoe in her writing. Um, it's something that she she struggles with because it's it's draining for her to talk about it, but she sees this important need for education for the people around her. How did the so well maybe maybe you could talk a little bit more articulately on what the social model of disability is and how did it influence the crafting of the story of social cue? Yeah, the, my understanding of the social model of disability really resonated for me, and like you said, not in any way taking away, not saying that. Um, disabled people don't have disabilities, but it's more, I guess, looking at it as, you know, disabled people not being less than um, and that there are changes that need to happen in society to support everybody and to account for the diversity of of bodies and minds and um, making sure that, you know, our society in buildings and in the way, you know, everything is accommodating for all people because if you only accommodate to a narrow um part of society, then that excludes a lot of other people. So for me, that um, really fit with my understanding of autism. Like my, I'm not a, autism is a superpower kind of person. Some days I might feel like that and I'm not, autism is a tragedy that, you know, some days it can feel like both of those or neither of those, but I think it's somewhere probably more in the middle. And I think um, for Zoe, it, it is that emotional labor of, of, 
um, teaching people about language and about um, support in the workplace and, um, you know, friendships and that kind of thing. But I think she sees what she's able to do through her own learning from disability activists. That was another point. I think that was important. It wasn't because Zoe has a disability that she's suddenly the expert on disability. Um, She puts the work and the time into learning um, how best to, to speak to those things and support um, disabled people. So she's able to pass that information on, but she's equally teaching people that they can do that learning for themselves. Mm. It was a really timely reminder for me, um, that for a you know a, a huge what we would probably call the vast number of people who, if they think about it, would identify as neurotypical, or again, if they think about it, would identify as able-bodied. That we live in a society where our everyday is you know it's kind of like fish in water. Fish don't think about the fact that they're in water. It's something we can take for granted. But the desk I sit at the the house I'm in, which has a set of stairs going up to the front door. Are all, are all designed and they're designed in a way that I don't have to think about them. Um, and I really, I, I, I liked that you brought this up and that it was something that I could think about as I travelled along with Zoe. And if you can give me just a really strange tangent that popped into my head, Kay, um, I'm just reminded of, of this article I read once about how there's a scientific reason why apparently um, toast always fall, falls buttered side down. <sighs> Um, and this is, I know this sounds really strange at the moment, but the idea is that the way we as humans have evolved to, you know, have a sort of kind of height range, when toast falls due to gravity, it will always fall in a certain way. Um, so this, this strange social moray is, is just a part of the, you know, who we are, but that doesn't take into account all of the different, you know, ways that human beings can be, um, that was a very strange way of me <laughs> explaining my own understanding of that. But basically, yeah, and I think yeah. my, like the way that I, when I got my diagnosis, I, used to, I looked at it like I have a deficit in communication. I have a deficit here and it's my job to try and fill that deficit and meet other people where they're at. And that involves a lot of effort and a lot of masking. And the, the more I sort of, the more years that pass and the more uh, understanding of myself that I gain, I think I've come to the realization now that I have a style of communication and another person that I'm communicating has a style and we both need to do our best to try and understand the other person's communication style. And, you know, rather than it just being my job to, to sort of change myself to communicate with a neurotypical person. Yeah. And I look, I absolutely love that. And let me, let me get on solid, more solid ground here and stop talking about buttered toast because (laughs) We, we talked about off air and I think people who listen to the show have, have heard me occasionally mention that I'm a speech pathologist and let's get something clear about communication. Communication is not just a, the way a person communicates. It's also the way a listener listens. So yeah, for, for everyone out there that is thinking about communicative difference as listeners, as the person here getting the message, we have a, a huge responsibility. Communication is a two way thing. Um, and it's not up to a person who communicates in a way other than us to change, uh, in, except insofar as it's up to us to change the way we're listening. I just that's something that's hugely important to me. So thank you for bringing that up. Oh, thank you. I think even you know things like not giving eye contact is thought of as not paying attention, or, or moving your body when somebody's talking to you is seen as not paying attention. Oh. We need to sort of change those um, 
those ideas because that's not necessarily the case for everybody. Yeah, let's okay, this is this is you and I we are I I am going to get on my soapbox because <laughs> a year and a half after after Zoom becoming a part of our lives, we've got to get over eye contact because you can't make eye contact on Zoom. I've got you <laughs> we're having a perfectly fine communication. I've I've got you slightly left of center of my camera. I don't <laughs> I don't know if we've made eye contact once and we are still communicating. That's right. Yeah. All right. So we started talking about romance, but I feel like I'm sounding a little anti-romance here. And I'm not. I just don't always think that men necessarily have the right idea about it. And one thing that I loved in Social Cue was when Zoe met up with Sarah and she acknowledged. So she's this this meetup, Sarah has commented on her original post. Um, Zoe acknowledges she'd never thought about her sexuality before. It was something that, you know, all her friends were commenting on cute boys and she just went along with it because that's what she assumed people wanted her to do. This is incredible. I don't think there would be many people, especially people who are identifying perhaps as cis and straight, who could say, oh, yeah, there was that moment where I had a really deep thought about my sexuality growing up. I think a lot of us would have had Zoe's experience. Yeah, we just went along with it. Can you talk a little bit about including this perspective in the novel? Yeah, so I I pretty quickly got the idea that I wanted to have five um, perspective suitors, I guess, um, to come. It just, I don't know, something about the number five that I really like. And it seemed strange to make all of them guys. To me, it seemed natural for her at her age to be exploring um, her sexuality. But it also, I wanted to explore masking, particularly um, autistic masking and how that can hide or even not allow certain parts of your self or your, your personality to, to grow or to be because you are so focused on fitting in and sort of taking on other people's traits and trying to assimilate and, and I guess not be observed as being different or wrong. So I thought, um, although, it, you know, it's a small moment in the book, um, just given the parameters of the story, it was something that I, I could explore a little bit. And I just thought, um, yeah, with masking it, it was a way to show that some people might think, well, surely if she, you know, by that age, you know, she should have thought about it, but with masking, you know, and and obviously any age is a great age to think about it, but with masking, I just think there are whole parts of your personality or yourself that you are cutting off or shutting down um, in order to take on these other things. And that, that, um, yeah, that's hard. And I wanted to, to just open up a little bit of space for people to, to have that thought if it's something they hadn't before. Could you talk just a little bit more about what what masking is, just for people who might not be as familiar? Yeah, so autistic masking is, um, I guess, looking to your peers or people around you um, for traits. So it can be anything from the way you talk, um, you know, the slang that you use or the way you hold yourself, your body. Um, it's an inherent thing. And I look back on it now and can see it so clearly in my childhood and teenage years of how much effort I put into masking. And it's just, it's not a natural way of being like it takes a lot of effort. And so it also mentally drains you, um, from, from holding up that mask and from, um, maintaining it, you know, whether some people it's just at school or just at jobs, but some people it's at home as well. Um, if their home isn't necessarily a safe space for them to, to be fully themselves. So um, it's, yeah, it's really difficult. And I think I, 
I still feel like in some circumstances now, because I had so many years of masking, I will still do it just to get myself through a social circumstance, maybe with people I don't know that well, or if I'm particularly tired and I don't want to do that, I'm trying to sort of unpack it and, and revert or, or, you know, let myself be more holy myself at all times. But um, I guess it's a survival sort of instinct. And I want to just, just explore just a tiny bit deeper because I, I feel like, there might be people listening who are thinking, well, come on, we've all been unlucky in love and come on, we all have a little bit of trouble figuring out the cues of romance. And there might also be people thinking, come on, we all play a role sometimes. What we're talking about here are, you know, very difficult situations, things that you, as you just said, leave you exhausted and can be incredibly draining as a person. Like how would you disambiguate um, what what people might be saying is, come on, don't we all do that versus the autistic experience, the the experience of neurodiversity that is so draining? Yeah, I think I think I can understand that's a sort of um, a way that people try and relate, but it feels like the opposite. It feels quite isolating when I hear that, you, that sort of, aren't we all a little bit autistic sort of um, thing? Mm-hmm. Because I, I just feel like it's different. And if you're autistic, you understand how it's different. Um, and maybe I'm not doing an amazing job of explaining it, but it just, it feels more extreme. It feels more, um, like there's no choice over, um, over it. And it feels like it has a greater toll mentally. Yeah. I think, I think I hear sometimes in, in discourse, um, and particularly people who probably, um, work mostly in the disability rights sector, talk about in the difficulty of invisible disability. Um, we definitely, I think, you know, populations tend to uh, respond to what is visually um, visually sort of markable and have a lot more difficulty conceiving of someone who they, they say they think looks like them. Well, if you look, if you look like me, why, why is your experience not the same as mine? And Again, incredibly important to have in mind and for people to understand that people have these these not only different experiences of the world, but um, because of their disability, their entirely different way of interacting with the world. So thank thank you for thank you for taking the time to actually unpack a little bit of that for me. Oh no, that's fine. I think I also think that with. Um, especially with maybe a late diagnosis with unmasking and unpacking that people do then tend to comment or you're acting differently now since your diagnosis. And it's like, I've given myself permission to not keep that act up so much. So it's not that I have changed. It's more that I am becoming more myself because I'm not holding myself to, to those neurotypical standards. And we're coming into, I guess, thinking about mental health and the way this impacts mental health. And one thing that, rom-coms can hide amidst the laughter is the pain in finding love and as we travel with zoe um we travel with her as she basically becomes quite overwhelmed at times it undoes a lot of the hard work that she'd spent recovering from high school and the abuse the bullying that she suffered and there's a point in the book and i'm just going to just going to quote from the book here zoe comes to the realization she says to herself i looked at mental health like it was a destination and once you're there you get to stay forever and that just floored me that is such an incredible thing to have on the page that is such an incredible thing I think for people to hear that's why I wanted to to quote it 
I actually really, really admired Zoe's resilience. I really admired the self-care strategies that she is able to put in place for herself That because we have that, that point of view perspective. Can you tell me why it was important to acknowledge this concept of mental health as a journey? Yeah, so um, the starting point for that sort of theme in the book was that with, again, with Please Don't Hug Me and with meeting young autistic people um, in the promotion of that book or, or them sending me messages on social media, bullying was just the thing that I heard over and over again about the high school experience and how hard it was made um, in one way or another because of bullying. So I knew that I wanted to address it with my next book, but I also knew that I wanted to look at the aftermath of that and I didn't want to write you know, pages of scenes of an autistic kid getting bullied that didn't have value to me in, in what I wanted to write. What I wanted to write was, you know, how she pieced herself back together and what she needed to do. And I think the resounding sort of theme that came out of that was the importance of rest and the importance of downtime. Um, so Zoe's probably a lot better at advocating for herself and, and allowing herself rest without feeling guilty about it than I am. But, um, I think it was only after writing that that thematic element of the book, I realized I was probably trying to drill it into my own head of this idea that good mental health um, was something you had to keep working on as opposed to something that you just achieve and then you move past it. Because, yeah, I think sort of the last 18 months has really um, been challenging for everybody's mental health. And I think, you know, I probably thought I was at a wonderful place when I started writing this book and then, and then, you know, things happen and I realized that I needed to keep prioritizing rest and downtime and looking after my mental health if I wanted it to stay in a good place. Yeah. It just, it, again, I'm just going to say it felt so incredibly important. It feels like, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, there's been a journey for us just having mental health as part of our, our lexicon, part of something that we consider, you know, even just the idea that we have mental health as well as physical health. And what you've said there about, okay, it, again, it's not just something that you get and then you keep like your body. You can, <laughs> you can, you can go out, you can break your ankle tomorrow with, you know, and sometimes, sometimes physical health is compromised in the silliest of ways. I know anyone who's got a bad back knows that, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to injure your back lifting 50 kilos. You can injure your back lifting a cup of coffee. And our mental health can be like that as well. It is, it is that journey you've talked about. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And I think, I think, yeah, just the specific challenges of, of being autistic as well and the anxiety of, of navigating um, the world, if you don't prioritise your mental health and looking after yourself, I think burnout is a very real possibility and it's, you know, it's a lot harder to get yourself out of that state than to, I guess, work towards maintaining your mental health and not getting there in the first place. Now, Kate, this is an absolutely fabulous conversation. I love, I've loved reading Social Cue. I've loved talking to you about it. I really need to let you off the hook with my hideous analogies of buttered toast and deadly coffee <laughs> mugs. But before I do, I, I think one thing that is really important to acknowledge in the book, Zoe has terrific insight into her neurodiversity. She has insight into the way it impacts her life. As you said, she's she's worked uh, up ways to help herself manage. But despite progress in autism research, autism in girls and women is still chronically underdiagnosed. 
a lot of the norms that are used for diagnosis were developed on men and young boys. So, you know, we see this medically across across all conditions that women just don't seem to have been considered and that's impacting people ongoing. You received your autism diagnosis in your 20s, as you mentioned before. Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any advice for people who are reading Social Cue, who empathise or relate to Zoe's situation? Yeah, I mean, I it makes me so upset at the moment because I see that there are conversations popping up around overdiagnosis, you know, people talking about it being this thing that is now overdiagnosed, you know, as if it's a fad or, you know, TikTok has made everybody autistic or has, has ADHD, but it's, it was such a long, difficult, expensive process to get a diagnosis. Um, and it's not like it came with, you know, any tangible funding or support or anything like that for me. Um, and it's not something that everybody has access to because of those barriers. So I think the fact that, the understanding and the language around what autism is, is becoming more accessible um, is incredible. And I think that um, anybody that, you know, is looking to, to pursue a diagnosis um, there's a lot of support available around how to do that now through agencies, you know, like Amaze in Victoria are wonderful. And there are lots of groups that do that, but I think, um, yeah, there's still a lot of challenges and I guess, one of the things that I find with people that I've talked to that have gotten a diagnosis that reach out to me on social media is the people surrounding them don't necessarily want to adapt to that new information about a person. So, you know, looking to the people who want you to stay as you are to accommodate their comfort isn't necessarily going to be the best way. So I think if an autism diagnosis or autism is something you're interested in learning more about or, or um, being diagnosed for yourself, I would say reach out to people within the autism community because there's a lot of support and um, information. I've learned so, so much about the way things operate in my mind and the way, the what, the whys of everything for myself um, just through the autistic community online. And that's been such a huge support and such a huge learning experience for me, which has been really positive. Yeah. I think what you just said there about the community of people that you're actually able to open up to and talk to for people who, who maybe have someone in their life that is, is worried, thinking about this is exploring this, being able to, you know, support people to, uh, to be open, to understand people. I mean, again, I, I hope this isn't another, another tired or um, overwrought analogy, but just regarding over you know, this idea of overdiagnosis, we don't, we haven't seen over hundreds of years, the average life uh, average lifespan expanding into our 80s and 90s and say oh gosh we're now overdiagnosing coronary heart disease we should go back to when we died young it's incredibly important that people get the healthcare that they need and this is a part of that um so yeah for, i guess for people who have someone who's going on this journey do the research <laughs> read read books like social cue read books like please um please don't hug me so that you can be a support. Yeah, um, that's yeah. really, yeah, really good advice. Or if it's following accounts on social media or if it's mm. signing up for newsletters or whatever it is, I think it's meant so much to me, the people that have put in the time to to learn more about it so they can use language and support me in the way that um, that that works for me and that, that helps them to learn about it as well. So I feel like, you know, it's a better, better communication between me and people in my life. It's been really good. 
Yeah, I think I think for myself, like yeah, following hashtags like um, hashtag actually autistic and hashtag ask an autistic, which is an opportunity that some people open up to to ask questions. Um, but on that, just also remembering that it's not someone else's job to educate you. Um, I think individuals do need to take responsibility for their their own education, do their own research. Um, and on that, this is probably a very good time for me to acknowledge, Kay, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and talking to us about this. Thank you so much for Social Cue. It's an incredible book. Um, oh, thank you so much for reading it. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Maybe let's, let's, end, let's end on a, on a high note because even though we can't talk about, you know, how, how Zoe's love life ends, <laughs> I, I think I, I'm just maybe I'm, maybe I'm old, but I'm just universally happy that I didn't have to be on the apps at any point that I have a loving partner, but um, uh, it is, it is terrific to kind of have love in the world. And I think that's, that's kind of a, a big message of social cue. Yeah. And I, then I think, you know, I didn't paint the apps in the most flattering of lights, but I do think that online dating and those kinds of things can make it more accessible for autistic people as well. In the, when the old going to a noisy, brightly lit, bar or something like that's not necessarily going to be the the best way to meet someone so I don't want to completely disparage the apps but I do want to celebrate you know what it is to be autistic and looking for romance we're all looking for the Venn diagram the little bit in the middle between being able to have a comfortable conversation on the apps and being in a noisy crowded bar that thin sliver in the (laughs) middle that's the space we can all um, occupy romantically I'm speaking with Keiko. We are discussing Social Cue. It is her incredible second novel, and I've absolutely loved it. Kay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Kay Kerr. Kay's new novel is Social Cue. It's out now from Text Publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, on, you know, the main socials. Just look for at Final Draft 2 SER. You can subscribe in your podcast app. It means a new great conversation and a little bonus midweek every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.